Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the long global history of invaders stealing the children of Native families to be acculturated into the population of the invading force. Reasons can range from a tactic of war and an intention to commit genocide, usually based on an ideology of racial superiority, to concerns over shifting national demographics, simple economic dispossession, or all of the above. And we end with a very important discussion of ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act, which is currently being challenged in the U.S. Supreme Court. The first 28 or so minutes of the show give historical context for the practice of abducting children in various contexts around the world. If for any reason you find that too difficult to listen to, I encourage you to skip to around the 28-minute mark rather than turning the show off, as the explanation and discussion around the Indian Child Welfare Act is critical to the future of Native sovereignty in the U.S. and is not to be missed. Clips today are from a DW documentary, ABC News, that's the Australian ABC, History's Stories, Behind the News, Democracy Now!, TRT World, Vox, Counterspin, and Amicus, with an additional members-only clip from Amicus. And stay tuned to the end, where I'll attempt to explain the differing worldviews on apologies. September 1939. Nazi Germany invaded Poland and for more than five years brought terror to much of Europe with its ideology of a master race. A central figure in that campaign was Reichsführer SS Heinrich Himmler. The leading Nazi was obsessed with racial purity and came up with a plan to bolster the so-called Aryan race. Between 1941 and 1945, children were kidnapped from all over Eastern Europe and forcibly Germanized. Historians estimate that 20,000 of those children came from Poland alone. The Reichsführer SS visited occupied Poland in 1941 and traveled through the Wartegau district. In 1939, Poland had been carved up between the Soviets and the Germans. Sections of the western part of the country, including the so-called Reichsgau Warteland, were incorporated into the German Reich. Other regions were placed under German civil administration. Himmler's vision was to make Germany the mightiest nation in the world by bolstering the population with new progeny from abroad, mainly from Eastern Europe. In the Bundesarchiv in Berlin are hundreds of documents that show the gradual development of Himmler's strategy for the organized abduction of children. After his trip through Wartegau, Himmler wrote to the Gauleiter Otto Greiser. I believe it is right that small children of especially good race from Polish families be collected and brought up by us in special, not too large, children's nurseries and orphanages. I would advise starting with two or three such institutions so as to gather experience. There are many myths about the forced Germanization of foreign children. One account is that they were ethnic Germans, that is, children of German ancestry who lived outside the German Reich, and that only very few children were brought to Germany at all. But Himmler's plan did have a system. As the Reich Commissioner for the Consolidation of German Nationhood, he helped to issue Directive 67-1. It stated, First, all children in formerly Polish orphanages are to be taken and placed in accommodations. After that operation is concluded, children living with Polish foster parents will be examined. The directive was signed by Ulrich Greifeld, Himmler's direct subordinate. Later, at the Nuremberg trials, he claimed that there had never been a concrete plan. 
Directive 67-1 went to all high-ranking leaders of the SS and the police and the corresponding SS leaders concerned with race and settlement policy so that the SS apparatus would be aware of how it worked. It was a part of a supposedly rational occupation and Germanization policy that was imposed mainly on occupied Poland, but also on other occupied and annexed regions of Europe. Today, experts believe that around 50,000 children were abducted from across Europe. Cases are known from today's Ukraine, the Czech Republic, and Slovenia. But the largest group was from Poland, because the machinery of the abduction started in the Wartegau district. First, orphanages were searched. Then, child welfare officials summoned all children living with foster parents for inspection. There were precise guidelines on how a racially suitable child was supposed to look. 21 characteristics were examined, including growth patterns, the back of the head, the bridge of the nose, and body hair. The officials were looking for so-called Aryan types, classified as pure Nordic, pure Phalian, or Nordic Phalian. What the Nazis couldn't use were unbalanced hybrid types. In the southwestern German city of Freiburg, Hermann Lüdeking is paying a visit to Christoph Schwarz. Schwarz is a teacher, but for years he has been helping Hermann. The two want the German government to recognize the kidnapped children as victims of the Nazi regime so that they can receive compensation. Schwarz founded an association representing the children's interests and he and Hermann have filed lawsuits together, so far with no success. As a last resort, they've approached Germany's highest court, the Constitutional Court. This is the letter I received. They're processing it. And now I have to wait for a date. Yes, Herman, I'd suggest that we write another letter to the Constitutional Court saying they should speed things up a little in consideration of your age. I think it's great that at his age he's still prepared to fight for justice, even though it's only about the symbolic sum of 2,500 euros. Really, it's a joke. According to Germany's Act Regulating Compensation for National Socialist Injustice, that is the sum to which non-Jewish victims are entitled. Hermann Ludeking considers himself a part of that group. For me, it's not about the money, but about the recognition that this was a crime. That's what gets me mad. Their strategy is to wait until nature takes care of it. Then it's over. The German government argues that the kidnappings can be seen as general collateral damage of war, and that therefore there can be no claim to compensation. And it's often argued that the kidnapped children were well treated, in contrast to other victims. That was true in Hermann's case. His German foster parents were wealthy. His mother was a teacher and head of the Regional Association of German Girls. The father was a high-ranking teacher. Both were Nazi party members. Hermann graduated from school, studied at university, and became a mechanical engineer. But the parents never spoke to him about his background. Even in his mid-80s, not knowing who his parents were is a source of unease that Hermann says will never leave him. This is what the Putin regime wants you to see. Helpless Ukrainian orphans greeted with teddy bears by loving Russian couples ready to take them in. In reality, Russia is deporting thousands of children out of Ukraine from areas it invaded and raising them as Russian. According to the Ukrainian government, more than 11,000 children have been taken so far. Only around 100 have made it back. Some are orphans, some of them orphaned because of this war, while others have parents back in Ukraine anxiously waiting for their return. 
Wayne Jordash is a Kyiv-based humanitarian lawyer investigating war crimes in Ukraine. The removal of children is one of the specified acts which are necessary to be established in order to prove genocidal intent. The transferring of children from one group to another. And this is a very clear example of that. Signs point towards a systematic strategy aimed at absorbing the stolen children into Russia. Now based in Latvia, Matvi's father Yevhen shows us evidence of his kids' abduction. It's marked with an official stamp from the Russian-backed, self-proclaimed Donetsk People's Republic. He's showing me a list of 31 kids, an official list of 31 kids taken from Mariupol to Russia, including Matvi. Yevhen was separated from his children at a border checkpoint. Just as the family were trying to flee the besieged Mariupol, Imprisoned on suspicion of military links, Yevhen finally released after 45 days to the shock of his life. His children gone. They said, your birth certificates have been sent to Moscow with your children. As far as I knew, I wouldn't see them again for however many days. Of course I was hysterical. After a frantic search, Yevhen made headway with the help of a secretive network of volunteers from within Russia, communicating via the app Telegram, the volunteers sorting his paperwork, booking his transport and taking him in along the way. A car took me to Novo Azovsk on the border. Local KGB officers interrogated me, stripped searched me, and eventually allowed me to pass. At the same time, the children say boarding house staff were pressuring them to make a decision, choose foster care or an orphanage. They were telling the children, your father can't make it, you have to decide. But after 90 days of separation, Yevhen finally made it to his children. I can't explain it in words. It's just something you have to feel. You go through all the circles of hell to finally reach your child. Kyiv's chief of police, Andrei Nebitov, says the task of getting all the kids home is overwhelming. It's truly an enormous job. We still have four kids in the Kyiv region whose parents say were taken to Russia. We have some evidence, but it's impossible to reach the children and talk to them now. Why is the big question? Is it because they fear their population demographics are against them, they need more people, more families. Do they need more white families to satisfy their, the idea of Russian purity? Uh, that's another possibility. Or do they just want to destroy the Ukrainian people? For Yevhen and his kids, now settled into a new life in Latvia, the recovery process has begun. But thousands remain displaced and more cases of abduction are arising almost each week. And so for many Ukrainian families, the nightmare is far from over. Imagine being a child and you've just been taken from your family, ripped out of the arms of your mother, father or parental guardian and placed into an unfamiliar environment under the care of unfamiliar faces who do not speak the same language as you. Well, for countless Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children in Australia, that was the case. This is the story of Australia's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children who were forcibly removed from their families during the late 1800s up to the late 1900s. They are known as the Stolen Generation. Removing indigenous children from their families was a practice that started from the early years of European colonization in Australia. Early colonial officials and missionaries thought it would be best for indigenous children to move away from their families and culture and take on European values and teachings. 
the Victorian Aboriginal Protection Act 1869 was one of Australia's earliest legislations put into place for the so-called protection of Aboriginal people. The legislation gave the Australian Protection Board extensive power and control over Aboriginal people, along with the authority to remove Aboriginal children from their families, based on their belief that the child was subject to neglect. By 1937, assimilation became a national policy for all Australia that forced Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples into white society, with one of the key strategies involving the removal of Indigenous children from their families, granting them with the provision of education and training that would prepare the children to live and work within white communities. The end goal for the assimilation was to eventually eliminate the culture, beliefs, and traditions of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Once the children entered white society, they were forced to take on new names and identities, and were also prohibited from talking in their native language or performing any cultural practices or activities. The children were also told that their families had either given them away or had already passed away. Even though the Australian government had promised an education for the children, this was not the case. Instead, the children were forced into domestic services or cheap labor at various institutions. For some children, they were placed into caring white families, but in most cases, many of the children were neglected and abused within their institutions or within their foster families. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander viewers are advised that the following program contains images and voices of people who've died. For the pain, suffering and hurt of these stolen generations, their descendants and for their families left behind, we say sorry. To the mothers and the fathers, the brothers and the sisters, for the breaking up of families and communities, we say sorry. And for the indignity and degradation thus inflicted on a proud people and a proud culture, we say sorry. Ten years ago on this day, the nation stopped to watch Kevin Rudd, Australia's Prime Minister at the time, apologise to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people for the stolen generation. As Prime Minister of Australia, I am sorry. On behalf of the Government of Australia, I am sorry. On behalf of the Parliament of Australia, I am sorry. In the 90s, there was a big investigation into the forced removals. It became known as the Bringing Them Home Report. And that report included a recommendation that the current government apologise for the laws and policies that were put in place by previous governments. But it wasn't until 2008, when Kevin Rudd became Prime Minister, that Indigenous people heard these words. As Prime Minister of Australia, I am sorry. After the speech, there was a huge reaction. <laughs> Ten years on, the impacts of the stolen generation are still being felt. Indigenous kids still face a lot of problems and inequality there are families still grieving for their losses. And there are people who still haven't been able to reconnect with their parents. But despite that, most still look back on the apology as the first step in a very long journey of forgiveness. All these years we waited, you know, for someone to say sorry from government. And I said, what really, you know, made me feel different altogether. I'm really thankful about that. I love what's happened today. It took a long time, but it's finally, finally got what we wanted.
A new report by the Interior Department has documented the deaths of 500 indigenous children at Indian boarding schools, runners supported by the federal government in the United States, but the actual death toll is believed to be far higher. The report also located 53 burial sites at former schools, which were run for over a century. The report marks the first time the Department of Interior has documented some of the horrific history at the schools, known for their brutal assimilation practices, forcing students to change their clothing, language and culture. The report was ordered by Interior Secretary Deb Holland, who is a member of the Laguna Pueblo. Her grandparents were forced to attend boarding school at the age of eight, she spoke on Wednesday. For more than a century, Tens of thousands of indigenous children were taken from their communities and forced into boarding schools run by the U.S. government, specifically the Department of the Interior and religious institutions. When my maternal grandparents were only eight years old, they were stolen from their parents' culture and communities and forced to live in boarding schools until the age of 13. Many children like them never made it back to their homes. The federal policies that attempted to wipe out Native identity, language, and culture continue to manifest in the pain tribal communities face today, including cycles of violence and abuse, disappearance of indigenous people, premature deaths, poverty and loss of wealth, mental health disorders, and substance abuse. Recognizing the impacts of the federal Indian boarding school system cannot just be a historical reckoning. We must also chart a path forward to deal with these legacy issues. The fact that I am standing here today as the first Indigenous Cabinet Secretary is testament to the strength and determination of Native people. I am here because my ancestors persevered. I stand on the shoulders of my grandmother and my mother. And the work we will do with the Federal Indian Boarding School Initiative will have a transformational impact on the generations who follow. That was Interior Secretary Deb Holland. On Thursday, Matthew Warbonnet, who was brought to a boarding school on the Rosebud Sioux Indian Reservation in South Dakota at the age of six, testified about his experience before the House Subcommittee for Indigenous Peoples. My boarding school experience is very painful and traumatic. I remember when I first got to school, the priest took us to his big room, which had six or eight bathtubs in it. The priest took all us little guys and put us in one tub, and he scrubbed us hard with a big brush. The brush made our skins and our backsides all raw. Then we had to have our hair cut. The school then put all the little guys in the same dormitory. We were together the first through fourth grades. At night time, you could hear all the children crying. To talk more about the history of Indian boarding schools, runners supported by the U.S. government, we're joined by Nick Estes in Minneapolis, writer, historian, author of the book Our History is the Future, Standing Rock versus the Dakota Access Pipeline and the Long Tradition of Indigenous Resistance. He's co-founder of the Indigenous Resistance Group, the Red Nation, and a citizen of the Lower Brule Sioux Tribe. Nick, welcome back to Democracy Now! Talk about the significance of this new Interior Department report. Thanks so much for having me, Amy. And as you could hear in the voices of the people, uh, Secretary Holland, um, this is a very emotional experience for a lot of Indigenous people in this country, and it should be an emotional experience for uh, non-Indigenous people in this country. This is quite a historic uh, uh, moment in time. Although it's not new news uh, to Indigenous people, it might be new news to those who are hearing um, this horrific genocidal process that has taken place, I think, um, you know, there's there's a reason why the forcibly transferring of children from one group to another group is an international legal definition of genocide. That's what we're talking about, because taking children or the process of Indian child removal has been one strategy for terrorizing Native families for centuries from the mass removal of Native children from their communities into boarding schools, as this new report 
uh, lays out from their communities into, you know, their widespread ad adoption and fostering out to mostly white families, which happened primarily in the 20th century. Um, this is, this is uh, you know, a historic report in that regard because it documents, I think, for the first time, uh, the federal government admitting to this genocidal process. Of course, they don't use that language in this report, but many of the researchers, most of whom were indigenous, um, who did the, the, the legwork on this first volume, I think it's going to be the first volume of several volumes, um, to say that this is a widespread, this was a widespread systematic uh, destruction, um, not just of our culture, but of our our our, our nations, as well as a, an open, you know, <laughs> theft of land. And I think that's important to talk about here, that settler colonialism isn't just about targeting Native people because they hate our culture, our language, or our religion, but this boarding school system came at a time when the United States government at the turn of the 19th century to the 20th century was looking to consolidate its Western frontier uh, through the Dawes Allotment Act, which resulted in you know hundreds of millions of acres of Indian territory being opened up for white settlement and, and using Indian children as hostages. And that's the language of uh, the policy reformers at the time. That's the language that they were using. They were saying, we are going to use uh, the, the ch these children uh, as hostages for the quote unquote, good behavior of their people. Thousands of unmarked graves under pink flags. They were discovered over the past two years near former residential schools in Canada. Each represents one of the many Indigenous children that were taken away from their families and forced into those schools. Now Canada has announced it will pay more than $2 billion to hundreds of Indigenous communities. The class action lawsuit by 325 Indigenous groups ended with a settlement, which will be placed in a trust fund independent of the government. This is the first time Canada is compensating bands and communities as a collective for this type of harm in regards to residential schools, one that places language and culture at the centre of healing to address the legacy of institutions that were aimed at destroying Indigenous heritage, Indigenous culture, Indigenous languages and Indigenous identity. For over a century, 150,000 Indigenous children were separated from their parents and placed in these so-called education centres. Many were physically and sexually abused. A National Commission of Inquiry in 2015 called the residential school system a cultural genocide, and hundreds of people protested, demanding an independent investigation. The settlement comes after hundreds of graves were found near former residential schools, which piled pressure on the government. Today, less than 8% of children under 14 are Indigenous, but more than 52% of them are in foster care. And while many activists call this settlement a historic victory, they say it is only the beginning of a long road to justice. I was adopted by a white missionary couple. I was adopted. Immediately placed for adoption. I was in foster care with um, one family for uh, 18 years. They were white. My parents loved us, and I understand that, but at the same time... They took the idea that um, they were saving me. Saving us. Um, from ourselves. Being saved and I should be grateful for the life that I've been given because any child on the reservation would give anything to live as I was living. They took us away from our mom. They came marching right in and literally took us and thousands of other children from their home. It's a way to er eradicate us and to go to a nation's children is one of the sure ways to do that.
The U.S. has a long and brutal legacy of attempting to eradicate Native Americans. It all started with an experiment and a man named Richard Henry Pratt. In 1879, the government funded Pratt's project, the first ever off-reservation boarding school for Native American children. His motto was to kill the Indian and save the man. What started there at the Carlisle Indian Industrial School was nothing short of genocide disguised as American education. Children were forcibly taken from reservations and placed into the school, hundreds, even thousands of miles away from their families. They were stripped of their traditional clothing. Their hair was cut short. They were given new names and forbidden from speaking their native languages. To take our children and to indoctrinate them into Western society, to take away their identity as indigenous peoples, their tribal identity. I think it's one of the most effective and insidious ways that the U.S. did do harm to, to, to indigenous peoples here because it targeted our children, our most vulnerable and they tried to make us ashamed for being Indian, and they tried to make us something other than Indian. By stripping the children of their Native American identities, the U.S. government had found a way to disconnect them from their lands, and that was part of the U.S. strategy. During the same era in which thousands of children were sent away to boarding schools, a number of U.S. policies infringed on their tribal lands back home. In less than five decades, two-thirds of Native American lands had been taken away. The whole thing was purposeful. And the fact that it has been buried in the history books and, and not acknowledged is also intentional. And in fact, the same tactics were used in New Zealand, Australia, Canada. All of these countries have acknowledged, apologized, or reconciled in some way, except for the United States. Just as the boarding school era started fading, another assimilation project took shape. Adoption. The main goal of this pilot project was to stimulate the adoption of American Indian children to primarily non-Indian adoptive homes. They claimed it was to promote the adoption of the forgotten child, but it was essentially a continuation of the boarding school assimilation tactics. And the strategy came with a financial advantage for the government too. Adoption was cheaper than running boarding schools. But first, adoption officials had to sell white America on the idea of adopting Native American children. Feature stories like this one in Good Housekeeping marketed them to white families. They were described as unwanted and adoption gave them a chance at new lives. In the end, their media campaign worked. White families wanted Indian adoption. But the problem was, many of these children were not orphans that nobody wanted. They were kids often ripped apart from families that wanted to keep them. You still will hear stories today of people, you know, my age, older, saying, I remember as a child, um, the social worker was coming and people would hide their children. On reservations, social workers used catch-all phrases like child neglect or unfit parenting as evidence for removal. But their criteria was often questionable. Some accounts describe children being taken away for living with too many family members in the same household. An extended family is a big thing for Native people. And that means being judged for being in a house that's overcrowded. So it's always whiteness is the standard for success. And everything else is judged by that standard. By the 1960s, about one in four Native children were living apart from their families. The official Indian Adoption Project placed 395 Native American children into mostly white homes. But it was just one of many in an era of Native American adoptions. Other state agencies and private religious organizations began increasingly making placements for Native American children, too. My mother giving me up was a white person telling her if she didn't, she would never see her other kids again. When you're adopted, you know you're missing something. Um, I think I've likened it to having, like, when someone has, like, a 500-piece puzzle and they have all the pieces 
to make this pretty picture except one. My adoptive mother was not well verbally, physically, and sexually, and, and spiritually abusive. So by the, by the time I was 14, I started drinking. 15, drugs were added, and I became an addict to numb. I didn't realize I was numbing pain. I tried suicide, tried slicing my wrist one time. Children were taken and believed like I believed for a long time that there was something wrong with me versus something wrong with the system. The Indian Adoption Project was considered a success by the people who set it in motion. Officials claimed, generally speaking, we believe the Indian people have accepted the adoption of their children by Caucasian families and have been pleased to learn the protection afforded these children. But the truth was unsettling. These hearings on Indian children's welfare is now in session. Well, I was pregnant with Bobby and the welfare kept coming over there and asked me if I'd give him up for adoption. Before, you, before he was even born? Yeah. They picked up my children and placed them in a foster home. And uh, I think that they were abused in a foster home. Four years after Native people organized in this Senate hearing, Congress passed the Indian Child Welfare Act, known as ICWA. It gives tribes a place at the table in court. States would be required to provide services to families to prevent removal of an Indian child. And in case removal was necessary, they would have to try to keep the child with extended family or another Native American family. Without our relatives, we cease to exist. So with Native people, part of our wealth is in our family. It's in who we're connected to. But the legacy of family separation in Native communities has been difficult to fully undo. Today, Native American children are four times more likely to be placed in foster care than white children, even when their families have similar presenting problems. In these cases, ICWA is often the best legal protection they have, and it's been under attack repeatedly. A young girl ripped from her foster family because of the Indian Children Welfare Act. White adoptive families intent on keeping Native American children have tried to do away with the act, and they're often backed by conservative organizations. The Indian Child Welfare Act was dealt a blow earlier this month. The subject of a lawsuit issued on Tuesday by the Goldwater Institute arguing that preferences given to American Indian families to adopt Indian children is unconstitutional and discriminates based on race. It's a, it's a way for these industries, um, these very powerful industries, to try to attack what Indian identity is. Wanting to overturn ICWA is connected to everything about who we are as a nation. So if we don't have any protections for our families, and if we don't have protections for our treaties, then we have um, no more Indians. We've been under attack, we're gonna continue to be under attack. And we have to keep, just keep fighting. It's in our DNA to survive. We are nations that pre-exist European contact, and we are still here. On November 9th, the Supreme Court heard the case Holland versus Brackeen. You might not have seen much about it. Media coverage has been spotty. I will drop us into the center of it with the lead of our guest's recent piece for truthout.org. Quote, Anywhere colonizers have invaded, indigenous children have been separated from their communities, whether through boarding or residential schools child protective services, or outright murder, the theft of indigenous children destroys tribal nations, which is what's at stake in the U.S. Supreme Court case Holland versus Brackeen, close quote. Nominal plaintiffs in the case Chad and Jennifer Brackeen fostered a native child whom they subsequently adopted, but were upset that they might not be able to as easily adopt his half-sister. As with many Supreme Court cases, their story is not the story, which extends far beyond them. It requires critical, thoughtful, human rights-centered storytelling to untangle an intentionally snarled story to explain what and who, really, are truly at stake. 
Jen Deerinwater writes, as I note, for Truth Out. She's also founding executive director of Crushing Colonialism. Welcome to Counterspin, Jen Deerinwater. Hi, thank you for having me on. Let me ask you to begin with why uh, ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act of 1978, why was it demanded and passed? What what does it do? So this nonpartisan act was passed because it, it was found prior to ICWA that 25 to 35 percent of all Native children were being removed from their homes by state welfare and private adoption agencies. And of those 85, of those 85% of those children were being placed with non-native families, overwhelmingly white Christian families, even when there were good homes with relatives and tribal members available. So the point of ICWA, this nonpartisan act, is to help keep native children with our tribal communities. You know, as you, you read in the intro, you know, a, a crucial part of colonization of, of the genocide of indigenous people is taking our children. You know, if we take away our future generations, then we cease to exist as indigenous people and as sovereign nations, which is really a lot of what this case is about. Even with ICWA in place, which is called the gold standard of child welfare policy, just so listeners know that, we're still finding that, uh, uh, Native children are still being removed at a rate of two to three times that of white children, and they're rarely placed with relatives and Native and tribal families and community members. Native families are the most likely to have children removed from their home as a first resort and are the least likely to be offered any sort of family support interventions to help keep their children. So that's, that's the importance of ICWA and where it's coming from and what and, and why it's so important. But now, the way that it works is also different than how one might think. So this doesn't apply to all Native American children. It applies to Native children who are either enrolled in a federally recognized tribe or are eligible for enrollment in a federally recognized tribe. So that's really important, and that is something that non-Native crafts has often gotten wrong about this. They have not use that distinction, which is very important because what so much at the heart of this beyond just the genocide issue is tribal sovereignty and the potential overturning of tribes or sovereign nations and really trying to turn us into nothing more than a race of people. And if you say that we are just a race of people, then something like ICWA becomes illegal under, you know, race-based discrimination laws in the country. But really, what the other side wants is the overturning of tribal sovereignty. You know, they say that this is about protecting Native children, but that's not what it is. It's about overturning our sovereignty so that non-Native interests like casinos and oil and gas can take our resources. And they're just willing to use our children as the fodder in order to do that. Well, as you say, the repercussions are huge, and I don't know that folks just sort of um, skimming the issue would understand that this isn't Chad and Jennifer. This is Gibson Dunn, right? The law firm. Correct. Gibson Dunn and their clientele have a much bigger picture in mind than Chad and Jennifer, which is what you're telling us. But if we could start at the epicenter, which you've started to say, what could be unleashed by the dismantling of ICWA, first of all, on Native people and Native rights. Just talk a little more about that. Yeah, so I I see this as an ushering in of uh, the termination era, which I, I wrote a bit about in my, my piece of truth out. So this is a bit of these brief background. The night In the 1950s, the federal government, Congress, who Congress is the only one who has any legal authority over federally recognized tribes, which is also part of what at stake, you know, the argument within this case. But the termination era of the 1950s, the U.S. government came in and basically terminated its sovereign nation-to-nation relationship with, with many tribes. The numbers that I have found vary a bit, but it was over 13,000 tribal members lost their recognition status. Several tribes in Oregon and California 
lost their status, which was also based in taking the lands in Oregon and California and and selling them off to non-Native interests. There were also changes to criminal jurisdiction. Um, Native people were relocated heavily to urban centers. Yeah. Uh, there was a relocation program that came during this era that the federal government came in and said, you know what, you can get good education, jobs, we'll get you housing, all these things if you move to cities. And as they have always done to us, they broke their promises. You know, our people got to cities and were put in the worst neighborhoods, kept in destitution, you know, no good jobs, no good health care. But suddenly you're away from your native community, you're away from your tribe, and you're not. It's very interesting the way it kind of works in this country. You know, my tribal citizenship for the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma doesn't end when I leave my reservation any more than my U.S. citizenship ends if I leave the so-called U.S. Right. But a lot of my trust and treaty rights, they kind of, they diminish. You know, I live in Washington, D.C. I have a trust and treaty right to the Indian Health Services. However, there are no IHS services anywhere near where I live. (laughs) Yeah. So... By relocating us, even though we're still, you know, citizens and members of sovereign nations, we still have these trust and treaty rights. It was a way of breaking up our communities and taking away our rights to exercise um, or our ability to exercise these rights. Yeah. Now, with this case, Holland v. Brackeen, I really see that as ushering in another termination era. Quilmot Nation Vice President and President of the National Congress of American Indians, Vaughn Sharp, told me in an interview that she really saw us as already being in a termination era and that this case could just move it along even further. So I sat in the court. Yep. It was an over three hour hearing and it was, I'm not going to lie. It was quite difficult to sit through. There was a lot of really insulting things being thrown around in there. But one of the questions that kept coming up is, is tribal citizenship, is it being a citizen of a sovereign nation or is it simply being a racist right. people? Right. That's at the um, core of it. Yeah. That seems to be at the core of it. Yeah. Right. And what it was so, what's so infuriating, which I don't believe I've ever seen this talked about in any non-native press ever. <laughs> um, but you don't have to know anything about Indian law in order to graduate from law school, to pass the bars, to serve as a judge, to serve on the Supreme Court. And Indian law is part of constitutional law. It's part of federal law. We have people graduating, becoming lawyers, becoming judges that know absolutely nothing about this. And this is very scary for Native tribes as so much of our our very ability to exist goes through the court. Yep. It was just really scary. The only person on the Supreme Court who has any experience with Indian case law is Justice Gorsuch. The rest of them have no experience, and it was very clear that they knew very little about us. Even the justices that I know will rule on the side of tribes, it's still some of what they said. It was just so clear. They don't even understand who and what tribes are and how it's different than being a race. Yeah, maybe explain that a little bit. Maybe maybe tell folks, you know, it's not yeah. the same thing. Yeah. So, one, I want to say that race is a social construct. Race is something made up. Ethnicity is real. Culture is real. So, I want to say, that first of all, I believe that race is just a construct in general for everyone. But for Native people, you know, I'll use my tribe as an example. You know, I want to point out Cherokee Nation is the largest federally recognized tribe in the country. We have more resources than a lot of other tribes. So not all tribal nations are in the same circumstances. I want to make that very clear. But my tribe, for example, just passed a $3.5 billion fiscal year budget for 2023. You know, our principal chief, if you want to have some comparison to the U.S. system, which our U.S. federal government system was actually based on the Haudenosaunee Confederacy's tribal system, but our principal chief is our president. Our tribal council is our Congress. We have a Supreme Court. We have a marshal service. We have a health care service. You know, we are, Forbes just named us one of the top 10 employers in the state of Oklahoma. You know, we are not a race that you just check on a box. 
you know, I vote in tribal elections. I see this as like my citizen to Cherokee Nation is no different than my rights as a citizen to the U.S. But I think, one, there's a level of ignorance on the part of the justices and, and, and the lawyers, everyone that just don't understand what tribal sovereignty is. But I think it's also very intentional. You know, like Matthew McGill, who argues for the Brackeen family, uh, McGill also argued uh, for Energy Transfer Partners Dakota Access Pipeline, which is very fiercely fought by Native people from around the world. Even. Yes. Um, but McGill actually said during the hearing, quote, citizenship is a proxy for race. Well, citizenship is not race. No. You know, it was very frustrating. And there's a level of ignorance, but there's also a level of intention that it's very clear. They know what they're doing. They know what they're arguing. And they know how all of these cases move together. You know, Gibson Dunn, the the law firm representing the Brackeens, who they actually went looking for the Bracken family. The Brackeens didn't go to them. They actually represent, uh, I believe it's two of the world's largest casinos. Right. They, they just filed a casino-related uh, lawsuit in Washington State. You know, they know what they're doing. They know. And the states know, too. wonder, Rebecca, if you can just help for people who can't quite figure out whether to think about this as a fight about politics or race, how that got so, so, so muddied at argument. I think it all got muddied at argument because even that quote, she's kind of talking about like Congress's Article One power. And so they're trying to argue that it's not within Congress's power to pass a law like ICWA because Native children not being removed from their families and tribes is not relevant to the self-governance or self-determination of tribes, which is, and you know, what Justice Jackson was pointing out is that in the legislative history of ICWA, the acknowledgement that without children, tribes don't have a future, it was acknowledged that that it is very much explicitly part of that. But then the other part where this distinction between the legal status of Native Americans as a racial group or a political group came up with the equal protection challenge. And so the way that ICWA functions is that it only applies to children. An Indian child under the Indian Child Welfare Act is only a child who is either enrolled in a federally recognized tribe or eligible for enrollment. And the placement preferences also work that way too. The first placement preference is any member of that child's family, which actually can also be non-Native members of the family, then another citizen of that child's tribe, and then a citizen of another federally recognized tribe. And so in no way where the law works, is it just about race? It's about tribal citizenship and how the law functions. And there's a whole host of federal laws that treat tribes and tribal citizens differently based on this political status. And that's where the case gets really scary because it could have really sweeping and broad implications for the rest of federal Indian law. And so if ICWA discriminates because it treats tribal citizens differently than, you know, non-Native folks. Well, what about the clinic where I go and I get my teeth cleaned? <laughs> you know, if ICWA is discrimination, what about the fact that tribes can operate casinos in states or in places where non-Native casino developers can't operate casinos? You know, if Native Americans are just a racial group and we're not members of sovereign Indigenous nations, what racial group in the United States has its own police force, its own court system, its own elections, its own land, its own water rights, its own environmental regulations. And so the fear is, is that this case is almost kind of like pulling a thread on a loose sweater. And if they can kind of topple ICWA, then everything else can go with it. And I think a really important point like thing to point out is that um, the corporate law firm who is representing the Brackeens and the other plaintiffs pro bono and their pro bono lawyer, Matthew McGill, filed a lawsuit last January 
on behalf of a non-native casino developer arguing that the quote tribal monopoly on gaming in the state of Washington violated the non-native casino developers constitutional rights for basically like they're basically making like a state's rights argument and an equal protection argument the same that they're making here in the ICWA case and so you can see very like obviously (laughs) where they're sort of porting the legal arguments that they've made here about children and just sort of transporting them over to casinos. We've just heard clips today, starting with a DW documentary on the history of Nazi Germany stealing children for Germanification from the lands they invaded. ABC News reported on the claims that Russia, as part of their invasion of Ukraine, has devised a system by which Ukrainian children are being adopted into Russian families. History's stories explained the history of Australia's stolen generations, and Behind the News highlighted the 10-year anniversary of Australia's official apology for the stolen generations policies. Democracy Now! explained the genocide of Native peoples through residential schools in the U.S. TRT World looked at Canada's similar legacy of residential schools and the news of their recent settlement with First Nations to pay reparations for the loss of culture and heritage they inflicted. Vox told the story of the United States' policies of Native family separation and how it extended beyond residential schools into a campaign of white adoption of Native children, leading ultimately to the passage of the Indian Child Welfare Act to stop the practice. Counterspin discussed the challenge to the Indian Child Welfare Act now before the Supreme Court, and Amicus went into more detail on the systemic damage to tribal sovereignty that would be the likely fallout of dismantling ICWA. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from Amicus explaining a bit more of the wonky details of the Supreme Court case. And so just objectively, the blood relatives of these children factually (laughs) faced more hurdles in trying to keep their children than the non-native foster parents did in trying to adopt them. But the non-native foster parents are the parties in the Supreme Court saying that ICWA violated their constitutional rights. As well as a nuanced explanation of how racism and economics played into each other and led to the widespread, culturally devastating child adoption policy. They really chose the sort of least cost outcome. They were protecting their bottom lines the whole time because they were getting money to just pay for that one child, of oversight of that one child. They saw it as, okay, well, we're getting money for this one child, but let's take that one child and place that one child into a middle-class home because it's cheaper. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it to help protect ICWA. Of course, as you've heard today, the Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA, is under threat. The Supreme Court already heard oral arguments in November but you can help amplify the stakes of this important case and join the efforts to mount public pressure on the court to protect ICWA right now. The ACLU has filed an amicus brief for this case and has explainers on their site and personal stories from formerly adopted Native people. You can stay up to date on the latest by following at ProtectIQA on Twitter and share their resources and articles to help others understand why this case is so important. And of course, we've included links to these resources and much more in the show notes. And finally today, I wanted to highlight a bit more about the process of apologizing as a nation. Of course, that depends on who's in charge at, at any given time and the, and the thoughts behind what apologizing means. So going back you know, just a little ways, Obama's quote-unquote apology tour was a disproven talking point on the right during most of the early years of his presidency uh, and maybe beyond. The claim was that Obama basically traveled around the world apologizing for America's past misdeeds. The reality was not that, but sort of close. 
It was just that he simply acknowledged some of America's past misdeeds and problems that we have at home. Basically, he was willing to admit that the United States has problems. And even though he didn't go as far as to apologize for any of those problems or past misdeeds, he was accused of doing so. And it became a rallying cry against him because he was weakening the country, they said. I mean, the Heritage Foundation wrote an article titled Barack Obama's Top 10 Apologies, How the President Has Humiliated a Superpower. And then Mitt Romney, his opponent in the presidential election in 2012, actually went as far as to title his campaign book, No Apology, The Case for American Greatness. And then, going back just slightly further, uh, George H.W. Bush famously used the right-wing talking point while running for president in 1988. I'll never apologize for the United States of America, ever. I don't care what the facts are. I will lead her. I will do my level best to stand up for freedom and democracy around the world by keeping the United States of America strong and by keeping our eyes wide open as we welcome change in the world, but keeping our eyes wide open. So I was thinking to myself about the disconnect here, because to me, a refusal to apologize when an apology is warranted is a major sign of weakness, not strength. Refusing to apologize is so easy a child can do it, and, and they usually do. I mean, think about trying to get a child to apologize for something. But apologizing, on the other hand, is hard. And so doing it is generally seen or thought of as a show of personal strength. All that seems so obvious to me that I got wondering, what does the other side actually think? No matter how wrong you think a person is, there's usually an internal consistency to their logic. And somewhere way deep down, if you dig far enough, you'll find the source of their logic that explains why they've diverged so far from your perspective. So there's this very consistent pattern of right-wing thinking that holds up a refusal to apologize, no matter how legitimate the complaint, no matter the facts, as Bush said, and sees that as a sign of strength. For instance, e even though the Never Apologize theme surely didn't start with George H.W. Bush, the recent news at the time when he made that famous quote was that the U.S. Navy had just accidentally shot down an Iranian passenger airline, Iran Air Flight 655, killing all 290 people on board. Now, if practically anyone were to accidentally murder 290 people, I think the natural instinct would be to apologize. Whoops, my bad, sorry. So who would think it a show of strength to refuse to apologize regardless of the facts? My take is that it comes down to a differing worldview on the nature of strength itself and where it comes from. That is, strength can either be based on leadership, cooperation, mutual respect, you know, those types of personality traits that make people actually want to follow and respect you. Or there's the other view of strength that's based on domination, intimidation, and the threat of or actual use of violence. Those types of traits that bully others into following your lead. In other words, it's the classic breakdown of preferring to be either feared or respected. Now, the Obama model of being willing to acknowledge the existence of American fallibility strikes me as a classic use of communication tools intended to build cooperation and mutual respect with other nations. I mean, admitting fault on your own side is a great way of getting other people to let their own guard down so that progress can be made that benefits you both. But that is the exact thing that the right sees as humiliating weakness. So what's the flip side? Again, if you murder 290 people by accident and refuse to apologize, why is that seen as a sign of strength? Well, first, I guess I would kind of say that it takes a certain amount of personal strength to suppress our own most basic human instincts to that degree, that the instinct to make amends when we inflict harm. But the real strength in question, of course, is our national strength. So whether we're bombing innocent people uh, by mistake overseas, or killing children that we have kidnapped from their families and put in a residential school, the strength we show in not apologizing for that is the strength of domination, intimidation, and the use of violence. 
And if you're in that domination mindset, showing any degree of humanity is thought of as weak because admitting fault or apologizing isn't something that can help build respect for yourself. It's something that can be exploited and taken advantage of by others, which then threatens our status as leaders on the international stage. So that's my best guess as as to the rationale behind the doctrine of the refusal to apologize. As I said, it's no surprise to me that it's internally consistent. But when you dig deep enough, you will find the point of real divergence where it becomes clear what the real difference of opinion is. And to me, I still conclude that a belief in strength and leadership through domination, intimidation, and violence comes from a place of weakness and fear. Whether you're raising a family, interacting with your peers, or leading a nation, if the respect others show to you is based on fear, then you should be afraid that they will always be on the lookout for any weakness to exploit in an attempt to get out from underneath your thumb. But if you're raising your kids, comporting yourself in a workplace, or conducting your international relations based on mutual respect, you won't have to consistently fear retribution because you'll have earned real respect. And I think it takes confidence to be able to conduct yourself that way, whereas feeling the need to rule by domination is a sure sign that you lack the ability to earn genuine respect, the respect that you are so desperate for. And so you resort to intimidation in the hopes that your physical strength or verbal bluster can make up for your moral and intellectual weakness. As always, keep the comments coming in. You can leave a voicemail, as always, or you can now send us a text message through SMS, WhatsApp, or Signal, all on the same number, 202-999-3991, or email us to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Brian, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support through our Patreon Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content, no ads, and chapter markers in all of our regular episodes, all through your regular podcast player. If you want to continue the discussion, join our Best of the Left Discord community to discuss the show or the news or anything you like. A link to join is in the show notes. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com.